Uh, yeah, so before we take a break, this is not a recap. It's a clarification of yesterday's teaching. Um, so I can't do a recap of yesterday's teaching because it has to be uh, part two and part three together before we can recap it accurately. But uh, certain clarifications from yesterday's teaching. Uh, one, uh, it is easy for us to put everything into the wrestling ring, as in anything that happens in our lives now, we might just say, oh, we are wrestling with God. That's not true. Be careful that you don't tolerate that which is ungodly or assign to God things that didn't originate from him and say, no, this situation that's happening, uh, I'm just it's God wrestling with me. Now, make sure that whenever something comes that you know comes to steal, kill, and destroy, know that it is not something that God is sending so you can wrestle through it. Whenever things have fear in them, Anything that brings fear, know that it is not God trying to have you wrestle through things of fear. Whenever it is something that Christ paid a price for, like sickness or disease, God is not sending you sickness and disease so he can teach you how to wrestle. Remember to keep that in mind, eh? Because otherwise we begin to assign everything to God. So begin every day from this end point, And the end point is that A... God is in charge and in control of my today. These are end points that I must begin from. Every day, I must begin from the end point that today God is in charge of my day and he is in control of my day. Two, that he's a good father who delights in me. That he's a good father who delights in me. Three, that he has always had absolute authority and he always will continue to have absolute authority. And four, that I have permission to partake in the promises of God, which are yes and amen in Christ. Guys, let me go over that again. Eh? And you have the ability to hear and understand what I'm saying. So don't, um, don't switch off because I said we're going for a break after this. Because if we don't clarify this from last week's, last uh, evening's message, we can lump everything together and throw them into the wrestling ring and say God's wrestling with me. If I have a sickness or disease come my way, no way I'm going to say, God, send this sickness and disease for me to wrestle through and make me stronger. That isn't my father. If I have situations come into my life that frighten me and cause tremendous fear, I'm not going to say, God, send this to me so he can make me stronger. I'll still wrestle through, but it ain't coming from my dad. If I see things that are coming to steal, kill, and destroy... I'm not going to say that these things are coming from God and that he's teaching me how to wrestle. Ain't true. Jesus Christ said he came to give life abundant, not to steal, kill, and destroy. And every day I start, I will start from this end point that my God is actually in charge and in control of everything in my today. Two, that he's a good father. Three, that he has always had absolute authority. Nothing happens just because powers may think it can happen, be they human or spiritual. And fourthly, that I have permission every day to partake in the promises of God. I'm a divine partaker in the promises of God set and established in my life by the new covenant, by the blood of Christ. Once this is the end point you begin from, then you can wrestle into obedience, rest, and the strength of God. If this is not the end of every day, 
then it is not possible for you to wrestle into a place of obedience, of rest, and of strength. You won't be able to. Because you will assign to God what, he did not, what did not originate from him. And you will accommodate in your life that which God did not send. So make sure that this is your starting point. Only then can you wrestle into obedience. You can wrestle into rest. You can wrestle into his strength through soulishness, through sin, through sickness, through Satan, through systems. You wrestle into what? Into obedience, rest, and his strength. But you always identify where things are coming from. When things seem to be withheld, this was a question someone asked at the end of the service yesterday. When things are withheld, how do I know whether God is withholding it or whether Satan is withholding it? When things are withheld or when things seem withheld, operate by the proceeding word as in go to God and say, Father, I need to see why it's being withheld. Help me see and help me stand so that I can press through in the correct way. If Satan is withholding something, I have to combat it. When God is withholding something, I have to humble myself and walk with him. The proceeding word is supposed to show us how to see and how to stand. So hearing is such a critical part of the Christian experience. And every day we get to hear better. Every day we get to hear better. Guys, persistence is not about saying, okay, God, I'm going to wear you out with my persistent praying. That's not how this works. I was talking to a friend of mine, a wise friend of mine, who said to me, listen, persistence is not about wearing God out. Because when we read the story about the persistent widow, we think it's about wearing God out. Now, persistence is not about wearing God out. It's about only you can do this for me, so I will cling to your faithfulness with my life. That's what persistence is. That only you can do this for me, O oh God. You've already said you love doing this for me. Only you can do this for me. So I'm going to cling to your faithfulness with my life. That is how you wrestle through. So to answer the question, how do I know if something is being withheld by God or withheld by the devil? The answer is, operate by the proceeding word. Go and say to God, Father, things are not working out. I've been waiting. I've been standing on promises. What is happening? Show me through ways that only you can show me how I should see and stand. Do I combat? Do I wait patiently? Do I walk with you? How do I wrestle into a place of obedience, rest, and your strength so that be it withheld by the enemy, I know how to combat that. Be it withheld by God, I know how to humble myself and wait for you to appear. These things need to be clarified from yesterday. I just want to pray for you before we take a break. Father, the reason I'm praying right now is uh, because you want to increase Acts 29's capacity to um, handle things in the Spirit. One of the disadvantages of COVID and Zoom or live stream is the luxury of switching off us our ears, our minds, our spirits, turning off the switch that shifts us from being students and participants to non-students and non-participants. I just feel prompted to pray that all of us here in this studio right now where we are live streaming and all of us at home, 
are being told by you, Holy Spirit, that you want to increase our capacity. Not in terms of time. We're not going to go extra time today. But in terms of being able to handle weighty matters, you want to increase our capacity. And so I say, oh God, increase mine. Increase everybody in this studio right now so that no one in the music team or the tech team or the sound team switches off because a certain portion of the event is done. And no one at home affords the luxury of switching off. Father, at the end of the day, they're not switching me off or my voice off because if I'm saying stuff off you, then we are turning ourselves off from you and that um, doesn't do us any good. This is not negative psychology or something, Father. Reverse psychology, sorry. This is just a statement you're wake, making. I please ask Spirit of God for an increase in our capacity right now for the days ahead in the name of Jesus Christ. Even though we've had two evenings continuously and we've arrived at the third evening, come, stay the course, stay the course. I'll increase your capacity in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go on a break.
Okay, guys, uh, before I teach, we'll just sing the uh, one verse and chorus of the song. It kind of describes the teaching that we've been doing about Jacob at Peniel. So uh, just, just set the teaching up with part of the song, and then uh, I'll go straight into the teaching, okay? So why, Jacob, can't you go straight into the teaching? Why do a song before going to the teaching? I'm not too sure why, but... Bless me, holding. 
Hey, this uh, sounds very fake, charismatic, and I half was hesitating to do this, but I don't, I don't think I can avoid it. So there's, and I don't even know whether it's someone listening right now or whether it'll be someone in the future, uh, maybe tomorrow or maybe next month uh, when someone's listening to this. But there's someone uh, watching this who has a yellow T-shirt on, and uh, it's almost like one of those uh, T-shirts with the word cheers written on it, like the old show. Um, and uh, God wants to say to you that um, he knows that you've reached the end of your rope and uh, that your habits that you have begged, pleaded, lost again and again and again God is going to deliver you out of it in a flash. It's like, it's like going cold turkey on the spot. But this is a sin, a habit that you've struggled with. It's almost addictive. Not almost addictive, it is an addiction. And you've struggled with it for years on end. And you have these brief moments of success. And during those times of success, you and God are so thick, you can't understand why you slip back into it again and again. And as you listen to this, you'll be shocked at how this addiction breaks it, in a flash. It's like, uh, it's like the kind of deliverance that only God can bring. And as it happens, 
It sets you free for the rest of your life so that you can run after the one who you've always longed to run after, but this had always got in the way. So just thought I'll share that with you, eh? Okay. Hosea chapter 12, verse 4. That's what we said we'd talk about. Hosea chapter 12, verse 4. And here's what it says. Um, in the KJV and the NKJV, this is what it says. Yes, he, as in Jacob, had power over the angel, and he prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke with us, the Lord God of hosts. One more time, Hosea chapter 12, verse 4. Yes, he had power over the angel. It's such an, uh, these verses are so um, um, not fitting together, and yet they're all strung together. So it says, yes, he had power over the angel, as in, yes, Jacob had power over the angel, and he prevailed. But in the very next part of the verse, it says, he wept and made supplication unto him. And then it goes on to say, he found him in Bethel. But we're talking about Jacob at Jabbok. And suddenly the verse switches to, he found him at Bethel. That happened in Genesis 28, not in 32. And there he spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts. So that, those are the verses we'll examine. So this is the third part of the series. And by his strength, he had power with God. By his strength, he had power with God. So let me set the scene up that we've been following over the last two days. Jacob is distressed. Jacob is fearful of Esau. Jacob is fearful for what might happen to his family because Esau has 400 men coming with him. And Jacob reminds God of the promises that God had given him at Bethel where he saw that stairway going into heaven. He reminds God of those promises. And he's alone at Jabbok, having sent his wife and his property ahead of him. He's alone at Jabbok. And in the middle of the night, the angel of God comes. Only the angel of God comes to fight him. That's the scene. That's the setup. And even though he's at the bottom of a dark river gorge at midnight, Jacob sees the face of God. Which is why in Genesis 32, verse 20, he says, I will call this place Peniel because I have seen God face to face. Which then kind of dismantles the theory that God wanted to leave in the morning because he didn't want Jacob to see his face because daybreak was coming. Jacob already saw his face, man, and how he managed to see the face of God in the middle of a night in the dark uh, uh, ravine is pretty amazing in uh, itself. I don't know if you've seen real darkness. I was once with Dano and uh, Eddie in the middle of the bush in South Africa. And after having lived in a city, man, when things go really dark, darkness has a strange darkness. Because there are no lights. Eh? There are no lights around. You can't see city lights out in the distance. It's completely dark. You, you see what Abraham saw in terms of stars. There are thousands and thousands of stars out there. It's just that you don't see them in Vancouver. <laughs> partly because of the clouds, partly because of the lights. And in a very dark place, both in terms of his soul and in terms of his physical environment, he begins to fight the angel of God and he knows that he has to call the place Peniel because he has just seen God face to face. 
Guys, there's a certainty that God wants to bring to us, bring to me, that cannot come except through face-to-face wrestling. There are promises that we can trust. There is His faithfulness we can trust. There are words and prophetic words that we can trust. But there is a, there is a certainty that comes uh, that God wants to bring to me by saying, Hey, Jacob, can I, uh, can I have you engage me in face-to-face contending with certain issues so that you know me like, like in no other way? They say that wrestling is one sport where people are in such close contact. There's no other sport like it. No other sport like it. So here's a question we have to ask. How come Jacob, it says, had the power over the angel and prevailed? How come Jacob had power over the angel and prevailed? How come the angel of God, how come this uh, person that Jacob meets and realizes, ah, shucks, this is God himself. How come that it says in scriptures that Jacob bested the angel of God or Jacob had power over the angel and prevailed. How did that happen? And yet, shortly after, the angel just touches the inside of the hollow of Jacob's thigh and Jacob is incapacitated. So how come Jacob had power over the angel and prevailed? Guys, the thing is, when God wrestles, when God wrestles, when God wrestles, he humbles himself, he humbles himself. When God wrestles, he humbles himself to meet me on my terms. He humbles himself to meet me on my terms. He humbles himself to meet me on my terms. He humbles himself to meet me on my terms for the purpose of bringing me, for the purpose of bringing me to the end of my strength, to the end of my strength and the beginning of his. I love this line. I've seen God do this so many times with people with me, with us, where he humbles himself when God wrestles with you, or when God contends with you, or when God wants to uh, bring to pass something dramatic or earth-shaking in your life, He humbles Himself to meet me on my terms, uh, so that uh, so that I can dialogue with Him, I can argue with Him, I can contend with Him, as if I were doing that with another man who had the power to release something to me that I can demand things of, that I can point out things from the word, that I can contend, argue. He allows it. This is the king of the universe who if he holds his breath, the entire earth collapses. If he lifts his finger, planets fly out of orbit. That same God has the ability when he contends with man to humble himself, to meet me on my terms. And what's the purpose? The purpose is to bring me to the end of my strength and to the beginning of his to bring me to the end of my strength. That's his purpose. So even with Jacob, that's what's happening. 
Okay, I'll fight with you as a man fights with another man. But my intent at the end of the day is to bring you to the end of your strength and to bring you to the beginning of mine. So he was okay with Jacob winning. He does this with Abraham. He does this with the Syrophoenician woman. Contends with them on terms that they understand. And like I said earlier, it is in these kind of face-to-face encounters, wrestlings, contentions, fighting, that you get to know with a degree of certainty certain things about God that will never leave your life. Never leave your life. You will never doubt again in those areas. Not because you have extra faith, but because you have to see the beginning of who he is. Desire this. It's not some kind of uh, uh, selective experience that is meant for a few. If only parents could begin to do this for their children. And they draw them aside. And on one hand, come to terms come to the terms of the, with their children, but it's not so that you can have a friendly discussion, but so that you can bring the child to the end of their strength and the beginning of something new that you know because of the experience you already have. That's a different topic. When God wrestles, it is never to defeat me. When God wrestles with me, it is never to defeat me. When we wrestle, it is defeat or winning. When God wrestles, it's never to defeat me. God wrestles me not to defeat me, but God wrestles me not to defeat me, but to spend, but to spend, but to spend me, but to spend me so I can replenish, but to spend me so I can be replenished, so I can be replenished so I can be replenished with something I cannot provide for myself. So I can be replenished with something I cannot provide for myself. I cannot provide for myself. God wrestles with me not to defeat me, but to spend me so I can be replenished with something I cannot provide my, for myself, and I have to cling to him. I have to cling to him. This is, in a sense, what Matthew 5, verse 3 says from the message where it says, Blessed are you when you have reached the end of your rope, because now there is less of you and more of God. So one of the reasons he wrestles me is not to defeat me, but to bring me to a point where I have spent myself and I'm so empty that I now need to be replenished, not with something that I can provide for myself. And this is exactly what happens to Jacob. He realizes there's nothing left. And now he has to be replenished with something else that he cannot provide for himself. And so he clings on to God. One of the things, uh, th- th- these things can only happen when we step into things that are far greater than us. As long as you remain in a secure or relatively risk-free corner, you can always manage the outcome. It's a question we must ask ourselves as a church and as individuals constantly. 
The advantage of a low-risk environment has, is that you can always manage the outcome. Spend means to exhaust, empty, yeah. The advantages of a low-risk risk environment is that you can always manage the outcomes. And so uh, these, these, these things can only happen when you're caught in jabbok. So sometimes it doesn't matter where the threat is coming from, whether it is orchestrated by God or whether it is orchestrated by the enemy. Being in places like Jabbok and throwing yourself helplessly into the arms of God will bring you into a place where you will have face-to-face -face encounters, but it has to be risk-prone. For me, yeah. All my life, guys, and I say this with uh, tears, not with pride, all my life, God has made sure, either through my own thirst or through his orchestration, that there isn't more than two or three months where I'm not risking something and stepping into uh, shoes that I cannot fill. But it is the only way, it is the only way for a Christian And now we're taking on a thing that's going global and we don't have what it takes. But to be able to go out and speak it, to declare it, to boast about it, to um, not hold back on it, puts us into a place where we are either failures, uh, frauds, or <laughs> we are in a place where God will prove himself again. God wrestles with me not to defeat me, but his intent is to expend, his intent is to have me expend every ounce of strength, every ounce of strength. His intent is to have me expend every ounce of strength to lay hold, to lay hold of the high calling of Christ. It says so in um, Philippians 3.13 that I strain forward, reaching out for that which Christ lay hold of me. I strain forward, reaching out for the high calling of Christ upon my life. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3.13. So his intent, God's intent through times of wrestling is, hey Jacob, as I wrestle with you, can you lay hold of that which I'm inviting you to take hold of? Can you lay hold of that which I'm saying you want it? Come take it. Can you lay hold? It's like that game, I forgot the name of the game, where the, you put a handkerchief in the center of the field and then you go running and you start circling and someone has to grab the handkerchief and run and you've got to be sh quick on your feet, grab the handkerchief, run. That is what I'm talking about. God is saying, hey, here it is but I'm not going to let go of that that easily. I mean, you can imagine that night where he has just told God about the promises that God guaranteed him at Bethel. 
and he sees a man coming towards him and he thinks perhaps this is something that God is sending his way. But as the man comes, the man, like in, the, uh, like in multiple battles in the ancient uh, Middle East, uh, comes and says, okay, uh, put your fists up because I'm contesting you. I'm contending with you. And Jacob is thinking, really? When I need help, this is what you're coming up with? God's intent is, hey Jacob, can I expend every ounce of your strength to lay hold of the high calling of Christ? I want you to expend. Spend is exhaust. Expend is invest. Spend is exhaust. Expend is invest. Can you expend? Can you invest every ounce of strength that you have to lay hold of that which I'm inviting you? But I'm not going to give it to you just because you said a simple prayer and sang a song. I'm going to give it to you because you want it so badly that you will sell all your treasures to get the pearl. That is how much I must want something that is precious in the eyes of God. There is something to do not throw your pearls before swine. Only may you not be the end of the sentence. And in the process, if you thought I called you pig, I didn't. God wrestles me not to defeat me. God wrestles me not to defeat me, but to have me acknowledge my old name. God wrestles me not to defeat me, but to have me acknowledge my old name. God wrestles me not to defeat me, but to have me acknowledge my old name and the fact that it is unsuitable or no longer appropriate, paving the way for a new name. God wrestles me not to defeat me, but to have me acknowledge my old name, its unsuitability, thus paving the way for a new name, and with a new name, for a new name, and with a new name comes new responsibilities, new domain, and new enemies. That's what God does with Jacob too. In the heavenlies, Acts 29's name is changing. Which doesn't mean we're going to go and um, change things in Ottawa. But as it becomes clearer, we'll know what our new name is. And our new name then begins to define the course that we take. It defines the new enemies we deal with. It defines the new territory that's been given. God wrestles me so that once I've wrestled God face to face, I will prevail with men. God wrestles me 
because once I've wrestled God face to face, I will prevail with men. You see this in Jacob's statement in uh, Genesis 32 verse 30. He says, uh, and the New King James puts it this way, I think there's a deliberate reason for it. He says that I, uh, he called the place Peniel because he said, I have, seen face to, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And my life is preserved. I w uh, many, many, many scriptures, uh, ma many um, uh, versions put it this way. I have seen God to face to face and yet my life was spared. They always put the word and yet. In the King James and the New King James, it puts it this way. I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. I would like to suggest to you that what he's saying there is, I have seen God to face to face, and he's already saying that it doesn't matter that I'll be meeting Esau. If I have been delivered here, I'll be delivered there. That this will preserve me there. He's talking about what he's sure of. He's not saying, yet I have been spared. He's saying, I have seen God to face to face, I have wrestled him. Now as I go meet Esau, I know my life will be preserved. It's odd how Jacob wanted a promise. He wanted comfort. He wanted reassurance. He got, instead, contention and a fight. But the end of the fight and the contention, he still is absolutely sure that he will be preserved. You see, the end result is exactly what you wanted. But the process is usually not what you want. And therein lies our struggle, right? Give me my results the way I don't finish everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, that was just something that happened internally. Uh, people are just eating while I'm talking and they're just finishing everything. So, um, God wrestled so that once I wrestled God, Face to face, I will prevail with men. Jacob realizes this when he says, my life is preserved, because he knows he will be delivered. At the end of the day, the results are the same. The process is different. Any questions that are coming online, Brandon? Okay. So here's another question that I would think we need to ask. Why did God wrench Jacob's hip? Why did God wrench Jacob's hip? Because that puts such an odd uh, spin on the story. Why did Jacob wrench? Why did God wrench Jacob's hip? Why did he dislocate Jacob's hip? So let's go with the uh, very obvious answer, which is right there in the scriptures. He wrenched Jacob's hip because the Bible says he realized, as in God realized, that he would not prevail against. Jacob. Remember the first point we made, that when God wrestles, he humbles himself to be, he humbles himself to meet me on my terms for the purpose of bringing me to the end of my strength and the beginning of his. So God lowers himself to do that. And I've seen him do it so many times. There's so many times when I've gone to argue with him, and I'm sometimes scared of arguing with him because I think to myself, what if I get rude? What if I accuse him of things that um, aren't right. And so many times when I argue with him in prayer or contend with him, I tell him, listen, at any point if I get rude, can you please have your Holy Spirit pointed out because I really don't want to be rude to you. I don't want to accuse you. I don't want to suspect you. But I do want to have a healthy argument with you. So uh, 
can you be like a lawyer I'm putting in the dock? Let me now argue. And he brings himself to that level, which is what fascinates me. We are so different from the Old Testament, guys. In the Old Testament, God was nebulous. No one dared say anything about him. You would always have to conclude every argument with the simple scripture. His ways are higher, his thoughts are higher, and that is the end of it. And yet God is so different now where he allows me to contend with him. He invites me to contend with him. In Isaiah 43, I think, or 42, it says, Come, contend with me, bring your arguments. And so, why did God rent Jacob's hip? Because the first reason is he realized that he would not prevail against Jacob. So, um, I remember when I used to play uh, ping pong with my dad, and initially uh, when I was getting better, uh, he would let me win, and then he would have this strange serve where he'd throw the ball up in the air and do something funny. But every time he served that serve, I could never return it. It was, it was like his special sauce or like turbo serve. And he does that, you can't return it. That's how he used to win. Just when I thought I had him at my mercy, he would do those three serves and he'd win the game. Like Tooney does with all these boys, except me. So the point being, Tooney is scared to play me. And if he beats me, he'll be in probation for eight months. Um, So God realizes that he cannot uh, prevail against Jacob. So he touches the inside of Jacob's uh, hip, uh, thigh, and uh, uh, Jacob's uh, hip is wrenched. The second reason that God wrenches Jacob's hip is to help... to help Jacob realize, to help Jacob realize that this time around, that this time around, that this time around, what he sought, what he sought, he would not get. by his own strength. Guys, what we don't realize in this story is that when Jacob initially goes into wrestling, he thinks he's wrestling a man. And the reason he went into it with the degree of confidence that he had was because Jacob was an extremely strong man. It says in Genesis chapter 29, verse 8 and verse 10, that Jacob had gone to meet Laban and he's sitting there at a well and the well has this huge stone over it and uh, um, he asks uh, the Rachel and the women why is it that nobody's uh, drawing from the well and they say we need the shepherds to turn up because once they turn up we need a few of them to lift the stone before water can be drawn from this well and then it says in verse 10 that Jacob went And just one man lifted up that stone instead of waiting for the other shepherds to come. This was a strong man, eh? This was a strong man. And that's why one of the reasons um, God wrenches his hip is 
to help Jacob realize that this time around, what he sought, he would not get by his own strength. There's a question, Brandon? Coming up shortly. Uh, third reason. To see if Jacob would persist despite losing his foothold. To see if Jacob would persist. To see if Jacob would persist. To see if Jacob would persist despite losing his foothold. Despite losing his foothold. To see if Jacob would persist despite losing his foothold. Now that his strength was gone, would this man fold? Or would this man still persist to receive what he knew? That only this man who now he knows is God himself can give him. Would he persist or would he say, nah, you've hurt me. Now I can't win. I've lost. Y you know the resignation that you go through when things don't work out. It's been two days. You've stood on a promise. You've done all the things that you need to. Nothing is happening. What happens to you? You begin to resign. You sometimes begin to slip into old sins because you think to yourself, this is useless. Let me go back into the way I used to do. Or you begin to attribute to God what should not be attributed to him. You give the devil more credit than you should give him. You get resentful in your heart. You get into places of self-pity. You come up with your own theology to either justify, hold on to, uh, or um, comfort yourself. And through all this, all that we are doing is saying, now that my leg is dislocated, I am packing it in. Instead, this man, even though he's a man of strength and has just lost his footing, and you lose your footing in wrestling, there's nothing left, eh? You lose traction on any one of your feet, and you're done. There's no wrestling anymore. So what does he do? He clings. He just holds on for dear life. I like my namesake at times like this. Despite losing his foothold, he now he could no longer stand and fight. So what does he do? He weeps and pleads. He could no longer stand and fight. So what does he do? He weeps and pleads. That's why in Hosea 12 verse 4 it says, Yes, he had power over the angel and prevailed. And then it goes on to say, He wept and made supplication unto him. The same man who was wrestling now is weeping and pleading. But the one thing he knows is, I will weep and plead. Because bless me, for I will not let you go. Even though I know you can easily break the hold I have on you. I've seen what you did with my thigh. I know that I'm clinging on to you and you can shove me away like one shoves a fly away. But I am weeping and pleading and I'm saying to you, oh God, bless me for I will not let you go. There's something about this man that God knew ahead of time, but he didn't know and God had to bring it out. This is what I meant when I said that when God wrestles, he humbles himself to meet me on my terms for the purpose of bringing me to the end of my strength and the beginning of faith, saying, Jacob, now, I knew you had that. You didn't know it. I've shown you. Thank you. Let's go. There is this breaking out of a cocoon that must happen in our lives on a regular basis. Because whenever we make any progress in God, what happens is that environment becomes familiar. It begins to wrap itself around you. 
and you refuse to get out of this environment. You'll come up with excuses like, I need some time to pray. I need some time to prepare next time, maybe two weeks from now. Um, all kinds of things will come up. And the cocoon just wraps around you tighter and tighter. Every so often in the life of a believer, sometimes two months, sometimes six months, sometimes three years, one needs to break out of that cocoon because only then can God say, look what I had in the seed. But it was wrapped up all this time. This is why sometimes I keep pushing you into places that you don't want to go. I've only had mentors who were cruel to me in the nicest way. They would just keep pushing me into places I didn't want to go. But what happens when they do is you you escalate rapidly. What would take eight years, you get to do in two or three years. To answer the upside down, inside out question, um, uh, are there modern examples of contending? And yes, they are. And uh, uh, rather than, uh, l let me just go to the um, Bible itself to show pictures of contending, where there were others who wrestled. There was a man who contended uh, in the plains of Mamre or the oaks of Mamre, Genesis 18, where Abraham contends with God. And he's contending, again, uh, usually a lot of contention was for other people. And so Abraham is contending in Genesis 18. And he says, can we start with 50? Can we start with 30? Can we start with 20? Can we start with 10? Can we? He just keeps arguing with God, saying, listen, if you do this, they'll think this of you. If you don't uh, relent, they, uh, what will they say about you being righteous for the sake of ten righteous? Uh, what about your own righteousness? Will you destroy? It, 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 is, it is borderline, aren't you supposed to be like this? How come you are willing to do this? Wrestling and contending comes in different forms. In Jacob's case, it was actual physical wrestling. That was in Genesis 18. You go a little further and you find an 80-year-old leader refusing to lead his people if God didn't go with them. That's in Exodus 33, verse 15. Here is a man who has seen God. Here is a man who used to talk to him like uh, a man talks to his friend. And he's saying to God, I just want you to know that if you do not go with us, if you're going to send an angel with us, if you do not go with us, I just want you to know that I'm refusing to lead this people. Why? Because God has just said, I'm going to start a brand new generation. I'm done with these people. They're stiff-necked. I'll send an angel with them if they have to go. But Moses, how about you and I? We can start a new group of people because I will form my kingdom. And here is a man contending, Exodus 33:15. If you do not go with us, please don't tell me to go because I ain't going. Cancel this trip. It's literally, the message says, uh, the, um, if, if you're not going, this trip is off, just so you know. These are guys who didn't know God like you and I did. These are guys who were in the dread of God because they only saw God in his um, anthropomorphic, brilliant, glorious form. You go further and you see in Matthew 15, 24, a woman who has such feistiness about her. And 
feistily refuses to accept the exclusion of the Gentiles from the grace of God, despite Jesus' derogatory comments, she reverses his decision and gets her request granted. You should read that, man. It's like, I mean, in any uh, culture, referring to someone as a dog isn't good. Particularly in Jewish culture. And even though she was a Syrophoenician woman, she knows what that word means. And it is being said in reference to children and dogs. And now listen to how it goes. Matthew 15. Verse 24 onwards. Uh, Jesus answered. Uh, begin with. Jesus did not answer a word. 23. So the disciples came to him and urged him. And it's not like she's deaf. Eh? She can hear them saying, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, and now he's talking to her and the people uh, who said, send her away. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not, to r it's not right to take children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus said to a woman, you have great faith, your request is granted. I, I can't imagine the audacity of a woman in that culture to go up against a rabbi who has a following and she's an outsider and yet has the ability to refuse despite the derogatory terms used, the exclusion of the Gentiles from the grace of God because somehow she has a grasp of the kingdom that even his disciples didn't have and she reverses Jesus' decision and grants her request. That is what contending looks, for, looks like. Or you go further and um, you see a man alone in a garden and he's sweating blood and contending for the earth. Eh? At one point he even turns to his father and says, if this cup could pass, and then he immediately changes and says, nope, not my will but yours be done. He was alone too. Not the river of Jabbok, not the, uh, not the gorge of Jabbok, but in a garden called Gethsemane. I want to make a point after having uh, talked to you about these men and women. Here's the point that Uh, point one, could would not prevail be rephrased as chose not to prevail? Uh, what's, a f what's point one? Yeah, you can rephrase that, yes. Can we hear the first point explained again? Yeah. Why did God rent Jacob's hip? He um, uh, wrenched Jacob's hip because he knew that he would not prevail against Jacob, that Jacob in his strength would keep wrestling. He would not let go. And so he knew that Jacob would not let go. He knew that Jacob would prevail. And God has humbled himself, lowered himself to being a man and he's fighting with Jacob. 
I said that point earlier. When God wrestles, he humbles himself to meet me on my terms for the purpose of bringing me to the end of my strength. Unfortunately, Jacob was the kind who would not come to the end of the strength and therefore would not discover the beginning of God's strength. That is a cool thing that God does here. He's doing Jacob a favor. Yes, so having mentioned these four people, here's a point that I need to make, which I think if we learn, will be super useful in wrestling with God. Learn to wrestle with God. Learn to wrestle with God. And prevail from a place of meekness or, in other words, surrendered strength and if you do, you can walk in the blessing without a limp. You can walk in the blessing without a limp. These four people that I mentioned, be it Abraham in uh, Genesis 18, be it um, Moses in Exodus 33, 15, be it the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, or be it Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, you'll find that in all their cases, the approach was one of Listen, if you please allow me to, uh, uh, if I may say another word. Uh, I know uh, that true children should be fed first, but even dogs get the crumbs. And not your will, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, if I may say so, God, show me your goodness, but I can't lead these people. Please, if you don't go, I I'm not able to go with them. I it's always this place of surrendered strength or meekness. And even in your contention, which is why I was giving you that example of how I contend with God, I just go tell him, listen, I really want to argue freely. I don't want to be afraid. But I also want you to know that, you know, my, my opening line with every time I wrestled with God, argued with him, contended with him, is this, oh God, I know you're perfect, you're fair, you're good, that you are always just. There is no unrighteousness in you. I may not be able to see the situation, that, which is why I'm willing to take up your invitation to argue with you, but I want you to know that this is how I think of you. And having established this, if ever during this argument I veer off, I'll come and repeat this again and again, because you are righteous, you're good, you're perfect, you're fair, you're just, you're a father, and nothing about that changes. But now, having said that, can I argue freely? Let me begin to end. What a, what a bad choice of words. Hey, let me begin to end. Never know what that means. Hosea 12 verse 4b, it says, He found him with Bethel. He found him in Bethel. And there he talked with us. Jehovah Elohim Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. You know, one of the things about Jacob was he was so uh, accustomed almost to angelic visitors. 
You see that in Genesis 28, where angels were ascending and descending. And then in Genesis 32, shortly before this incident at Jabok, it says that he camped at a place called Mahanaim, Genesis 32, verse 1 and 2, where angels visited with him. Don't know whether the angels said anything to him, but he called that the camp of angels. But when he's wrestling, he suddenly recognizes the one he's wrestling with as Elohim Sabaoth. Uh, Jehovah Elohim Sabaoth, as in the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. So uh, it says in the last part of Hosea 12.4 that he found him in Bethel where he spoke to us or talked to us. Why is it that when Hosea is talking about um, Jacob wrestling, which happened in Genesis 32, why does he suddenly make a reference to Bethel? Oftentimes, guys, Bethel was the first place that God actually appeared to Jacob in a very visible way where he sees, uh, where he's sleeping there in the place that was called Luz. And he, while he's sleeping, he sees a stairway set up from earth to heaven. And he sees angels ascending and descending. And he sees God. And so oftentimes, what you find, oftentimes, oftentimes, what you find what you find and hear in Bethel, which is the house of God or the place of God or the gateway of heaven, oftentimes what you find and hear in Bethel is comprehended, is comprehended and realized in flesh is comprehended and realized in flesh only through progressive wrestlings at Peniel. I know the sentence sounds a little complicated, but all it's trying to say is, hey, many of the things that God shows you in a moment of worship or in a prophetic word or when you got born again or when you were suddenly yielded and filled by the Holy Spirit or in a dream, whatever God shows you, to bring it to pass, to make it part of who you are, to comprehend and understand it the way God wants you to, does not happen till you take what has been said and wrestle with it repeatedly. Paul puts it this way to Timothy at one stage. Hey, remember the prophetic word that was spoken over you and wage a good war with the prophetic word. As in, let the word that was spoken over you now become your sparring partner. Wrestle with the word spoken so that the word shapes you. It's one of the things we don't necessarily do with the prophetic. We hear the prophetic, we wait for it to happen, and that's only one part of it. The other part of it is to go and wrestle with it. Be, be, be twisted by it inside and out so that your entire shape is changed by it. Going over it every five days, ten days, repeat it, put it up, make a poster of it, sing it, read it, speak it, boast about it. That's how the word wrestles with you. And so many of the things that you find and hear when you were fortunate enough to be at the gateway of heaven actually can only be understood 
to the depth that they need to be understood or can only be realized in actual flesh when you go through multiple progressive wrestlings with God. And as you do, God says, now do you understand what I meant by that? Now do you understand what I meant by that? Now do you understand what I meant by that? See, I brought it to pass. Now do you understand? Now do you understand? And all wrestlings include some degree of faith. It is impossible to remain in the shallows and wrestle. Impossible. <laughs> you cannot go through this without risk. When God says something impossible to you, part of the reason he says something impossible to you is so that your soul will wrestle to it and will lose. Hear me again. Part of the reason God tells you to do something really impossible, illogical, stupid with what you don't have is so that your soul will have to wrestle with it. Your thinking and your emotions will have to wrestle with it. Your spirit knows it, but your spirit hasn't been trained to the point where he, the spirit is ruling everything. And your emotions and your thinking just wrestles with it. And the intent is that it should lose. And like I said, a risk-free environment will always produce manageable outcomes. Guys, for us, there is earth-changing legacy at stake. For us as a church, and when I say as a church, I so absolutely mean anyone who's listening and <laughs> who's hearing and believing. There is earth-changing legacy at stake for us. The weight of his glory is on our back. Like I said yesterday, the weight of his glory has the ability to straighten us, not to break us. There is earth-changing legacy at stake. There is the weight of his glory on our back and thousands of young lives in balance across battlefields. There is earth-changing legacy at stake. There is a weight of his glory on our backs, and there are thousands of young lives in balance, in the balance across battlefields. And what's God saying? He's inviting you, he's provoking you to wrestle with him. And even if your leg gives away, don't let go of your grip. Why? So that he can strengthen you. He says, Jacob, I know this is impossible. Church, I know it's impossible. Acts 29, I know it's impossible, but come, come wrestle with me on this. I know you're helpless. I know you don't know the next thing to do. You don't know the next move. Come, wrestle with me. Don't stand at a distance. Don't pray. Don't sing. Come, get dirty. Get into the mud. Wrestle with me. And as you do, I will bring you to the end of your strength and the beginning of mine. And don't let go. Even if your leg gives way, don't let go of your grip. Even if your leg gives way, don't let go of your grip. Even if your leg gives way, Jacob, don't let go of your grip. Why? So that I may strengthen you so that you may be a blessing to the earth. Because thousands of lives are in the balance across battlefields because there's an earth-changing legacy that is at stake and that is a, there is the weight of my glory on your backs. I think there are two questions. What are they? How do we wrestle from a place of rest? In other words, how do we wrestle? Or more likely, how do those two aspects of our relationship with God interact? <laughs>
Yeah. How do you wrestle from a place of rest? You can only wrestle from a place of rest. You can only wrestle God from a place of rest if you know who he is in terms of his fatherhood, his nature, then it is possible. It's the it's points I made to clarify things earlier. I must start every day from this end point. God is in charge and control of my today. He's a good father who delights in me, that he's always in absolute authority, that I have permission to partake in his covenant promises. Once I know his nature, once I know that he never wrestles to defeat me, now that I know it, my wrestling comes from a place of rest because I am not anxious about the end. Right now, as we speak, I'm involved in a situation where I have done everything I need to and I'm at absolute rest. It's a highly risky thing. I was telling Heidi about it vaguely yesterday. Um, uh, and yet, I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not checking the next message. Why? Because once you know the character of your God, you know that only good can come out of this. I do not need to be anxious. I do not need to worry about what to do next. I do not need to know whether I should compromise, not compromise, whether I should do this or not do this. You can be at rest because you know that if God is inviting you into something, it is always to bring you to a new place in Him, not an old place in you. We are not rehashing Jacob all over again and calling him Jacob or Jakub. We are changing his name, man. Or Jacob. Or Jake's. Or Jacobu. No, we are completely changing the name. Yisrael. He used to be called Yisra Jacob, as in Jacob will rule. Now it is Yisrael, as in God will rule through him. 